There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Hello, and welcome to Maxine Michel Movies. This week we are continuing our examination of the monochrome team and discussing, in a most ladylike way, Billy Wilder's opus, Some Like It Hot. This is a movie film what has real good examination of gender roles and stuff like that there. (laughs) Please join us here in our salon as we enjoy some strenuous needlepoint while elegantly (laughs) sipping on some chamomile. Do try the finger sandwiches. They are divine. I am your dainty and feminine hostess, Max Ermengarde Levine, and over yonder, lounging upon the Davenport, a vision in pale aquamarine taffeta is the delicate flower that is Mike Michel Hortense Luce. Please greet our guests, Michel, you naughty vixen. Yeah, the only problem is this aquamarine matches my skin. <laughs> it's not a good tone for you. <laughs> I don't think this is a good tone for the show. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> or women's studies. No, no. Today's women's studies class taught by Bruno. (laughs) Butch. But before, well, yes, I I like to think so. But before we get to all of this and that, we've got our poll question to go over. Poll question. The question was simply, Orson Welles, director or actor, yay or nay? Bumpy. was from Bumpy. (laughs) Uh, we have from Dave. Dave, which is nayish. Yep. He was the whole package. But if I had to pick director, F for fake and War of the Worlds. Hmm. Okay. I never saw F for fake. I have. Nick Hoffman says, I lean towards director for David's take as well, uh, for Dave's take as well, as of course Citizen Kane and Night of the Iguana. Although anyone whose voice has been so thoroughly imitated, including by a genetically engineered lab mouse, has to be taken seriously as an actor as well. Well said, Nick. Yeah, that that's the, the seal of approval. Oh, have you had a cartoon character make fun of you? Then you're a serious actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're famous and stuff. Valerie Coons, who we all know and only one of us is related to, says, I confess, I don't know that much of his work. I think I'm in a minority, but I don't care for Citizen Kane. Gasp! I've seen it a few times, and while I can appreciate some of the direction and cinematography, I just don't like the rest of the film. Huh. I do like his radio work, The Shadow and Mercury Theater, as both director and actor. Wow. Hmm. That's controversial. Uh, George, I'm probably going to say his name wrong, Saulnier? Saulnier, yes. Saulnier. A a yay for both. Although I do find that his films, apart from Citizen Kane, generally suffer from terrible sound and sound editing. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. Well, remember, we remarked about that with um, Touch of Evil, Evil, with the sound being dubbed and stuff. Yeah. I didn't realize that was a thing. In general, his fall staff in Chimes at Midnight should have established him as the greatest performance of the role ever, but the film is a slog to get through because the sound recording is so echoey and distracting. Hmm. It looks dubbed, even though it isn't. 
As a director, his ambition outstripped both his budgets and the technology of the time. That's true. The Magnificent Ambersons has terrible sound, and the long take during the dance is beyond the dolly and lighting possibilities of the 1940s. Interesting. i got to check that out again. Mm-hmm. I would love to, to have seen him make films with a proper budget and the technology of today. I think he would have dazzled. As an actor, he's often great if a little bored because he's uninspired and often doing the film for the money to try and fund his passion project film that never quite gets off the ground. It would have been better for him to have come into prominence during the era of the auteur and been given the freedom and budget to realize his visions. Well, thank you, George. That was a very fulsome and intriguing answer. Now, I don't understand why he could say something like Orson Welles would be considered bored when working next to... Charlton Heston, for example. Yeah, yeah, hard to believe. <laughs> As opposed to inspired, perhaps inspired to get him off the set. See last week's episode on Touch of Evil. Richard Tatum starts off with blasphemy. Jesus F. Christ. Yeah. Brilliant director, superb actor, although his attempts at comedy later in his career were cringe-inducing. He did comedy? Well, you know, he would show up on talk shows and stuff. and I guess. The and third then there, man, his last mm-hmm. appearance as the planet in the Transformers as movie. As Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we'll, get, we'll get there. The third man is one of the great films. Likewise, Citizen Kane. Well, he says Christmas Kane, but I assume he means <laughs> Citizen Kane. Unless there's a, like, Christmas Carol version that he did that I missed. I don't think so. I'm betting okay. it's just spelling correction. It's, yeah, Christmas, Citizen Kane is not overrated, even though everyone loves to rag on how everyone loves to rag on it. The Magnificent Ambersons. Come on! Was he an ego-driven blowhard? Yes. Was he brilliant? Also yes. Okay. Adam Mark points out this list will be useless without mention of 1986's Transformers the movie. <laughs> yep, yep, I will not argue with you there, Adam. Or his and, ability uh, to sell frozen peas. And from, and from the North, and of course, no wine before it's time. Mm. And from the North, Vince tells us, I am not sure about Wells as a person, but as an actor and director, he was amazing. We can only imagine what he would have done if he wasn't blackballed much of his career and wasn't always chasing money for years and tears to make projects. Well, thank you. These were some really intriguing answers. Mm. Make me want to go look up some more of uh, Orson Welles' movies. Yeah. But we now well, come wait, to wait, our... Wait, 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 wait. What, 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 You haven't answered the question. That's true. Now we come to our new book. Uh, 221 episodes and he still doesn't get it right. <laughs> Answer the question. No, I don't <laughs> okay. want to. Okay, so Max no. votes against Orson no, Welles. No. Orson Welles, I think Orson Welles was a genius. I think he was brilliant. Uh, I do think, I think a lot of the points they make are pretty apt in that he was a brilliant filmmaker who was born about 30 years too early. Hmm. Uh, I th- he could have done more with, with more. As an actor, I think he's very good. I never thought of him as like a brilliant actor. I just think he's he's very good. He's not Anthony Hopkins to me, but as a director, I think he's remarkable. What about you? Have you seen a bunch of his? I mean, I know you love The Third Man. Well, he's, not, he's only in that. He's, everyone thinks that's an Orson Welles-directed film, and it's not. It, uh, it's a British film. Yeah, but it is, it is an example of his acting. It is, and he does his best Matthew McConaughey. He walks in for five <laughs> minutes, takes over the movie, and walks back out again. And, you know, there's his Alan Tudyk uh, in the form of Joseph Cotton, um, <laughs> his, his best buddy there. 
And he just takes the film right out of Cotton's hands and he plays with it, does an origami battleship, and then walks off again. Uh, I've seen him probably more as an actor than I've seen as a director. I've Since we saw Touch of Evil, I have now seen three of his films, one of which is Citizen Kane, which I think is an amazing film. The problem is, if you take it out of context, I think it loses a lot of the reason that people have considered it so brilliant. Because, yeah, A, fair. he was like 28 or something, something when he made like that. that, or 30. It was like ridiculous. And one of the most powerful men in the world was trying to keep him from making it. Yeah, and the most powerful man in the world's grandson used to come into the picnic every once in a while, which was oh, a comic really? store I worked at. Yeah, and one time you had a he walked show in up? and I was watching an episode of uh, Dick Van Dyke show when they found out that, or Richie finds out his middle name is Rosebud, and I'm like, uh, should I turn this off? Is this going to be awkward? <laughs> but I think the problem is that if you don't understand his age what he was capable of doing and what else was coming out at the same time as Citizen came. And also people yelling about it for years. Oh, it's the best, most amazing film ever made in American cinema, blah, blah, blah. Nothing will ever equal. You get tired of hearing it. And of course, if you do bother to see it at that point, you're like, yeah, whatever. I like Terminator better. (laughs) So I think that context is important. The other problem you have with Wells is a lot of it is, oh, you think this is good? No, no, no. If you'd only seen this version, uh, if you'd yeah. only seen, and we can't, except for last week's Touch of Evil, apparently we can. But most of the times we only hear about how genius he would have been. So it's hard. Now, that being said, there's damn few directors who can pull off the punches that he even gets to pull off after the studios run his movies through the grinder. Uh, F for Fake, I really like. It is a much later film. It is late 60s, I'm going to say. Early, no, it has to be early 70s, because it's ostensibly about one of my favorite subjects, which is art forgery, and this guy named Elmir Dehori. And it's about that, but it's not also about that. It's just about trickery in general, and it's a very clever film, and it's a very interesting film. Is it a best film ever made level film? No, but it is a very well made, very, and it's, it has a trick in it that I did in fact fall for the first time I watched it. So, uh, as an actor, I think I'm going to agree with you. I think he's very good, but I haven't seen him in enough that I haven't seen enough of his range. I didn't see any of his Shakespeare performances. And to be fair, I don't know if I would be able to judge them that well, but so. Okay. So once again, thank you for your answers. Yeah. And we have a new poll question based largely on this movie that we're about to talk about. Is the trope of men dressing up as women still funny? Mm. Has it become problematic? Mm. You know, is drag still a viable comedy element? Ooh, deep. (laughs) Well, well, I guess we'll find out when you tell us. Yes. But now, trivia. Facts. Budget for some like it hot. Two point nine million dollars. Box a lot. office take worldwide. That's well, Marilyn Monroe got uh, not just a large upfront, but she got ten percent <laughs> of the take up to forty million dollars. I'm sorry, did you just say that Marilyn Monroe has a big upfront? Yes, I did, and I stand <laughs> by that. I challenge anyone to disagree. Wow, okay. The box office take $49 million. Not bad. No, no. That's a pretty good return. This also, it was nominated for a pantload of Oscars. 
Jack Lemmon for Best Actor, Billy Wilder for Best Director, not Best Picture. That's rare back in those hmm. days, and actually still is. Uh, best Adapted Screenplay, Best Adapted Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction. The one thing it actually won was Best Costume Design, Black and White. Gee, I wonder whose costume won that award. <laughs> well, there wasn't very much of it, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> Hayes Code, what's that? We'll come back to yeah. that. Yeah, the picture was produced without approval from the Motion Picture Production Code, the so-called Hayes Code, mm. because it features, apparently, LGBT-related themes, including cross-dressing. Yeah, we'll come back to that, too. Yeah, the code ha had been gradually weakening the Hayes Code. If you don't know what that is, look it up. It's bloody hilarious. Yeah. It was uh, the, the rules for morality in films. This is why we get leaves down the river. <laughs> yes, this is what the the rule of like if two actors are on a bed together, one of their four feet has to stay on the floor because there's no way you could have sex if one foot is on the floor. Yeah, uh, the, it had been weakening all the way from the early '50s because of greater social tolerance, but it was enforced up until the mid '60s. Mm. Some people actually credit the massive success of Some Like It Hot with one of the reasons the Hayes Code eventually collapsed. Well, good for them. Billy Wilder wrote the script for this film with writer I.A.L. Diamond, which, if that's not a screen name, it should be. It's a great name. The plot was based on a screenplay by Robert Thorin and Michael Logan for the 1935 French film Fanfare of Love. Hmm. The original script for Fanfare of Love was untraceable. So Walter Mersch found a copy of a 1951 German remake uh, also called Fanfare of Love or Fanfare of Love! <laughs> it was German, after all. He bought the rights to that script, and Wilder worked with this to produce a new story. Both the films follow the story of two musicians in search of work, but Wilder made up the gangster subplot to keep the musicians on the run. Hmm. On its original release, Kansas banned the film from being shown in the state, explaining that cross-dressing was too disturbing for Kansans. Uh... Sure, but munchkins <laughs> and houses falling on wicked witches, that's just fine. Never mind tornadoes or yeah. sharknadoes. Jack Lemmon, in one of his biographies, wrote that the first sneak preview of this movie had a really bad reaction from a lot with a lot of the audience walking out. A lot of studio personnel were then bugging Billy Wilder. It's like, okay, here are the scenes you should reshoot and add and cut. And Lemmon asked Wilder, what are you going to do? And Wilder said, Nothing. This is a really funny movie, and I believe in it just as it is. Maybe this is the wrong neighborhood to show it in. At any rate, I don't panic over one preview. It's a hell of a movie. He then showed it in the Westwood section of Los Angeles, and the audience stood up and cheered. <laughs> Long after this movie's release, a movie reviewer asked Tony Curtis why his Josephine was so much more feminine than Jack Lemmon's Daphne. And it's true. Yeah, we'll come back to that, too. Curtis explained he was so scared to be playing a woman, or a man to be pretending to be one, that his tightly wound body language could be read as demure and shy to traditionally feminine traits, whereas Lemon, who was completely unbothered and, quote, ran out of his dressing room screaming like the Queen of the May, unquote, <laughs> Kept much more of his masculine body language. Yeah, we'll get back to that, too. They brought in a male cabaret dancer, a, a basically drag queen named Barbette, 
to teach Je- Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon to walk in heels. After about a week, Lemon declined his help. He said he didn't want to walk like a woman. He wanted to walk like a man trying to walk like a woman. And if you notice, Tony Curtis is much better at walking in heels. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Um. <laughs> Stories of the difficulty that the cast and crew had with Marilyn Monroe during the making of this film has grown to almost mythical proportions. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. In the farewell telephone conversation between Monroe and Tony Curtis, her side-eye movements clearly reveal, and I watched for this, that she's reading her lines directly from an off-screen blackboard. According to Curtis, Monroe was routinely two to three hours late on the set and occasionally refused to leave her dressing room. Huh. Marilyn also required 47 takes to get the It's Me, Sugar, correct. That line, it's me, sugar, instead of saying either, sugar, it's me, or it's sugar, me. After take 30, (laughs) Billy Wilder had the line written on a blackboard. Another scene required Monroe to rummage through the drawers and say, where's the bourbon? After 40 takes of her saying, where's the whiskey, where's the bottle, or where's the bonbon? Where's the beef? (laughs) (laughs) Wilder pasted the correct line inside one of the drawers. Wow. After Monroe became confused about which drawer contained the line, Wilder had it pasted in every drawer. (laughs) 59 takes were required for this scene, and when she finally does say it, she has her back to the camera, leading some to wonder if Wilder just gave up and dubbed the line. (laughs) There's, I couldn't find any evidence of that. Wow. She wanted the movie to be in color, by the way, and her contract stipulated that all her films were to be in color, but Billy Wilder convinced her to let it be shot in black and white because, well, the costume tests revealed that the makeup that Curtis and Lemon were wearing made their faces green. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Jack Lemon and Joe E. Brown did not know how to dance the tango. George Raff, the guy who plays Spats Columbo, spent hours teaching them how to tango. You think they would only take five minutes and get it right or else. <laughs> <laughs> the characterization of the, brief, the briefly shown Little Bonaparte, who is very, that name is very clearly a takeoff of Little Caesar. Oh, I love their pizza. Is very clearly an imitation of Benito Mussolini. Oh, okay. Yeah, from the bald head to the big, broad gestures, even to the hearing aid. Oh, see, I know that actor from a Columbo episode, but there Yeah, no, he's been around forever. He's done everything. But uh, the, the character of Spats Columbo is in several ways reminiscent of the notorious gangster Al Capone. Capone was responsible for the actual Valentine's Day massacre. No, he wasn't. Which was also... What? No, he wasn't. He was totally he innocent. Is. Everything oh, sorry, he did yes. was was pure and just. <laughs> yes, that that's right. Sorry, yeah, Mr. Capone was with me all evening. Um, this also the real Saint Valentine's Day massacre happened in 1929, hmm. and uh, also occurred in a Chicago garage on Clark Street. Ooh. According to Jules Faith in the Bronfens, the only person who ever dared mock Lou Wasserman's Music Corporation of America is Billy Wilder in this movie. 
When you see uh, the two musicians, Joe and Jerry, looking for work, they're opening up doors on all these offices. One of them is labeled Music Corporation of America, and the only occupant is a woman sitting at a desk drinking from a bottle. (laughs) Yeah, everyone was terrified of Lou Wasserman. Oh, except these kids. In Russia, the title is, I'm going to butcher it, but I really want Vidzahedze Tolko Devushki. Literally, in jazz, there are only girls. Uh-huh. Or, poetically or more figuratively, only girls are allowed in jazz. I see. Some people thought this was a much more appropriate title. Sure. There are a load of classic gangster actors in this movie. Not just George Raft, but Mike Mazursky, George E. Stone, and Edward G. Robinson Jr. <laughs> yeah, not, not the real guy. But it's an incredible simulation. I gotta say, an uglier bunch of mugs I have never seen. (laughs) Seriously. Mike Mazursky, who's the one with the very mushy face. Yeah. He you you've seen him in everything. He always plays a a tough or a heavy. Well, I thought he was Rondo Hatton at first, but it's like he's he's not. No, not quite. There is a ton of other trivia about this movie, but Mm. I think we'll leave it there. Yeah. Which then brings us to the plot. Flash! It's Chicago, 1929. Prohibition is in force, and gangsters and rum runners run the streets. And none more dangerous than Spats Columbo. But old Spats has had some bad luck. Just when he's rubbing out the stool pigeon who set him up, two down-in-the-luck musicians witness the whole Jim Jam. Sister Mary Francis, those two tune ticklers, or Joe and Jerry, are in a dilly of a pickle. Uh, okay, I'll stop before Elliot Ness <laughs> and his untouchables break down the door. <laughs> Uh, yes, Joe and Jerry, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon, need to get out of town because they've witnessed a murder, and they know it. I mean, the gangsters know it, but they're broke, and they have no gigs. Or do they? Ooh. Apparently, an all-girl jazz band is looking for a bass player and a saxophonist, and holy guacamole, those are the instruments they play. <laughs> so they do what any rational people would do. They hawk their instruments, get out of town, and become insurance salesmen. No, of course not. They dress up in drag and pretend to be women and join the band and head down to a gig in sunny Florida. Because, of course, they do. Also in the band, a blonde bombshell named Sugar Cane, played by Norma Jean Mortensen. Mm. Except she was going by some other name at this point. Uh, I never heard of her. Carolyn Marceau or something. Yeah. Hijinks get wacky, both of the girls find love, and the movie racks up a surprising body count for a wacky Billy Wilder comedy. (laughs) You said rack. (laughs) (laughs) The film. I'm not even going to ask the usual question. I'm sure you've seen this film many times and probably oh, yeah. can't remember the first time I you saw don't. it. I it, don't. It was I, a UHF staple yeah, in the day. I think I, so. was, I saw it on TV first. Yeah. And I have to say that I've seen it in passing. I don't remember if I've seen it in full. I probably have. But I would say that most of the prints I've ever seen don't hold a candle to the one that I rented this time uh-huh. around. Because I was surprised this photography, especially the early part of the film in Chicago... In, Chicago, please note the sound of air quotes. Uh, I've been on that back. Welcome to Burbank. I mean, Chicago. (laughs) Merry old chap. Um, (laughs) Is actually really good. There's some really nice blacks and whites and stuff going on there. Later, then they get to Florida. And, um, well, I just say this poor one out for the day for night filter because it makes uh, (laughs) quite the appearance. Yeah, yeah. Shall we start with the cast? Let us. 
Okay, so we got uh, Tony Curtis and we got Jack Lemon. Who do you want to start a, with? Oh boy, let's start with Tony because okay. we, this is like the third film we've done with him. You know, after Great Race and uh, Houdini. Yeah, I, you know, Tony does not get much of a good rep for being an actor because, quite honestly, mostly he's not. Um, he's he's not great. It, it, he's he has he's, his moments in sp- things like Spartacus. Sure. Well, which is one of the reasons I wonder why he didn't have as much trouble walking and never mind. That's a whole other subject. (laughs) But I gotta say, I think he's actually pretty good in this. He's not bad. His Cary Grant isn't the best. Well, and here's the weird part: he's actually more effeminate as Cary Grant than he is as whatever the Josephine. So, which I thought was weird, but apparently Cary Grant thought his impression was really funny. Well, and and although course, he did, he came up to him at some point and was like, "You know, I d- nobody talks like that, don't you?" Yeah, why don't you ask his boyfriend? Oops. Ooh. Yeah, that was a, another rumor <laughs> that, as to yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I you know because Jack Lemon, there's a big contrast because Jack Lemon simply does not have a dimmer switch. Jack Lemon yeah. is running at full speed the entire He's film. A, he his whole dial is set at eleven pretty much the entire time. There is no subtlety. He's funny as hell. Yeah. And but, he is throwing himself into it. But it's good that Tony Curtis is yeah. more reserved. And honestly, of the two attempts at being female, <laughs> yeah. I gotta give the prize to Tony Curtis. I think he does if a much better job. If you're gonna believe one of them, and let's face it, I don't think oh, you're gonna believe boy. either of them. No. You're not gonna believe Jack basically is like, hey, I'm not changing my voice. Okay. I mean, he squeaks a little, but a otherwise little it's just Jack Lemon and it's like Yeah. Slightly using the slightly higher register of an already fairly high voice. It's it's one of those it's like when I saw Robert De Niro in Star Stardust. Stardust. And you're like, you don't know any gay people, do you? And it's like Jack <laughs> Lemon, you don't know any women, do you? Like seriously. <laughs> he knew a lot of them, but I know, he never but really like paid he, attention to how they move, stand, talk, anything. And on one hand, he's funny. And the point of the film is it's a comedy. He's supposed to be funny. And he is. Yeah. But everybody in the film spends their entire time not looking at him pretending to be a woman. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no way they can buy it. So, yeah, this movie, not only you have to suspend your disbelief, you take have to take it out behind the barn and put a bullet in his head. Yeah. Well, and this is, a, in a way, it's it's a very Hollywood film. I mean, there's Jack Lemmon. He is one of the yes. luminaries of Hollywood, and he is mm-hmm. being Jack Lemmon. And it's the reason that people hired him. He's funny. He's energetic. He can be very dramatic as well, but this film doesn't call for that. Yeah. Um, so as far as his playing his character, maybe not so much. But as but being somebody who's enjoyable to watch on screen, he's very enjoyable to watch He's a lot of fun. It's just when he's in a bathing suit... <laughs> And we're supposed to believe that they still think he's a woman with those big, because he, I was, I was never really thought about this. Jack Lemmon has remarkably big shoulders. Yeah. Well, and he we also has see a one, very masculine body. We see at one point he still has kept his um, chest toupee, so to speak. And it's like, mm. okay, I understand why you didn't feel like you needed to shave that off, but you did. So <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah. And Tony, 
I think he's also smart, or at least the way they're portraying him is smart, in that he's showing less of his face. His hair comes down more. He always yeah. has his hat on. Although I gotta say, whatever glue they have for their wigs is astounding. I, amazing, because at one point Jack Lemon is literally hanging upside down and his wig doesn't come off. Right. Except when they need to, and then they can yank it off instantly. Right. But you know, there has to have been glue of some sort. Uh I don't know. Oh yeah. But, I think uh, it was stapled on. Yeah. What did you think about Marilyn? Well, and here's the thing. I did not know the reputation of her being hard to work with. Mostly, I and to be fair, I'm trying to think of I've seen another Marilyn Monroe film, and I'm not sure that I have. Oh, you, never, you never saw... Oh, Seven Year Itch, How to Marry a Millionaire? No. Yeah, I've no. seen both of those. And her reputation is being, you know, a dumb blonde, which is sad. No, no, no. It was not being a dumb blonde. It was being unprofessional. That was what people complained about. Not that she was stupid. No, but I mean, it's like looking at her characters and stuff, she tends to portray the dumb blonde. And she's not not undumb blonde in this, except, you know what? I think she actually does a pretty good job. Yeah, I thought I think so. of the major characters, she was really the one that we care about. She right? has some actual pathos to her. Yeah. I mean, Sugar Cane is a kind of tragic figure, and she's aware of it. She's saying, I always fall for the wrong guy. I always fall for these, for some reason, saxophone players. What a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. That's a very specific kind of niche, by the way, but whatever. Yeah. Not woodwind, she, saxophone. Saxophone, and especially tenor sax. She right. even says, Yeah. I didn't realize that was a type, but. Sure. Yeah. It, 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 and she, she says, I know this and I can't stop. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting part, because we're always, especially when there's any kind of romance involved in a comedy, we look at the chemistry. And in the beginning of the film, Jack Lemmon is all over her. It's like, oh, my God, I can't wait to get in bed with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and you expect that that's into Frank Gorshin. Okay. Well, he does. He's he crazy. Does, actually. He's cuckoo for cuckoo. Cuckoo Very puffs. over the top. Yeah. But then it turns out that Tony Curtis's character decides, well, I want a shot at this, too. And I mean... It's Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah. So I get it. There is some chemistry between Joe slash I can't remember his his Cary Grant character's name. And he doesn't he's just calls himself Junior. Oh, that's right. Shell Junior. Yeah. And Josephine and Marilyn Monroe's character. Yeah. But the thing is, I think most of the chemistry is coming from Marilyn Monroe. And I think okay. as unprofessional as she may have been. When it comes to what's on the screen, I think she might be a little underrated as an actor, not just a presence or a, a persona or a figure people, of Hollywood. People have said that. People have said that she wasn't challenged enough. They say in The Misfits, which I've never seen, she really started to shine. That was the last picture she ever made before she died. Yeah. And it is very easy to be overshadowed by just how unbelievably beautiful she is, because yeah. she really is. Yeah. And, and she has incredible presence. She also is being exploited by the camera and the director every chance they oh, can boy. get. Oh, boy. That dress she is singing in uh, in Florida, which for a second I'm going, is she wearing anything above the waist? Okay, yes. It's basically a body stocking with a few little bits of patterns in appropriate places. Yeah, but it's not... The stocking doesn't cover... There's, there's plunging neckline in the body stocking like yeah. the cleavage is on full display the the dresses they put her in when she's performing are the kind of dresses that started the haze code 
Yeah, pretty much. So it, it, that's one of the other things you have to suspend your disbelief at that. Oh, she, we're supposed to believe she is in danger of being thrown out of the band at any time, right? Because of drinking, which is what yeah. they're all doing. It's like you have look at Marilyn, look at all <laughs> the other women in the band. She could be setting the place on fire, and they wouldn't fire her. Yeah. Now, did you in your research was that her singing? That is her singing. Now, does she have an amazing singing voice? No. Does she no, have a very capturing singing voice? Yes, yeah, she does. That's the thing. Technically, she's not a technically great singer, but it's incredibly engaging. And it's mm -hmm. got just, she has such a sweet tone. She did her own singing. I mean, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is a friggin' iconic song. Well, and later when she'd go on to Gilligan's Island and do I Want to Be Loved that by You. That was Ginger. <laughs> oh. That oh. was, in fact, the first time I heard that song was well, Ginger same here. doing And, of course, yeah. Tina Louise was doing basically yeah. Marilyn Monroe, except yeah. red-haired. So, I, yeah, I want to say the surprise for me was Marilyn Monroe. I think she actually... She was a better actor than I thought she was, regardless of what it finally took to get her to be that way. Um, Tony Curtis, too, surprised me. Here's something, too. I did a little uh, research on Billy Wilder, and apparently one of his favorite things to do was to cast against type. Yeah, and he, would he take loved people, that. And I think he had a good idea. It's like he's taking people and putting them in somewhere where maybe their preconceived notions have to be directed by him because they don't have him for this kind of role, and it works, I yeah. think. No, I think it does. I think, like... Also, I really like George Raft in this. Spats Columbo. Yeah. All of the other gangsters are like cartoons. They're just ridiculous and silly. They're and literally like yeah. like an episode of I can't remember the the Muggsy and uh, what's his name. Yes, that's right. Rocky from and Muggsy. Rocky yeah. and Muggsy. Yeah, from from the from Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yeah. But he's genuinely menacing. He's yeah. kind of scary. You believe, I believe he was a gangster. And of course, he played so many. He was in the original Scarface. Oh. Yep. And uh, there is even a little gag for that in uh, when they're in Florida and they're going to the Opera Lovers Convention. <laughs> <laughs> we was with you at Rigoletto's. <laughs> I love that. But. There's a guy tending the door who keeps flipping a coin. Right. And he grabs it from him and says, where did you pick up that cheap trick? I can tell you where. It was from him. George Raft did the same thing in the original Scarface. His character was always flipping a coin. Well, and of course, that would show up in Singing in the Rain. There's yep. a in the in the gotta dance section, there's a, a guy who's flipping the coin and has a big scar on his face. So yep. I'm sure that yep. references that as well. Absolutely. Now, George Raft is terrific. He doesn't get a lot to do. He's not on screen very oh, much, but he's... He gets plenty, thank you very much, because <laughs> I want to, when we're done with the acting, yeah. I want to come to talk about the tone of this film, because... Ah, okay. Yeah. Joey Brown, I don't know from anything. Oh, um, you do. You've seen him in stuff. You just don't remember. He's one of those goofy-looking guys who is in the background of a lot of movies. So I think he shows up in a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons. He's one of those caricatures, and we never know who it is, and it's, yes. he's one of them. Yep. The only thing I've ever seen him in is a newsreel clip that's in an episode of MASH. Like That's uh, the only thing I've, I remember. Jo I know he's he's a known actor. I don't know him He for also anything. did a lot of very old movies. He was, a, he was around for a long time. This was toward the end of his career. Yeah, and he's enjoyable. He's fine. Oh, he's funny. He's just he's a, also a cartoon. Yeah. Uh, we'll get of, to what sort of a person he is later. Oh, dear. 
Um, yeah. The rest of the acting is fine. Um, yeah. I, I don't, the woman who plays the band leader, uh, uh, Susie, Sweet Sue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sweet, Sweet Sue, Sue. She actually shows up as, at one point or another, because they switched actors out, as Buddy Sorrell's wife from the Dick Van Dyke show. <laughs> oh, she's uh, pickles? One, she's one of the pickles. <laughs> she's, she's very tall. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she is. She's very, she's very formidable. She seems. I still, every girl in this band is a virtuoso, and I intend to keep them that way. <laughs> so yeah, think, it's, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. No, it does not. Yeah. So, I, ja- again, I think that Jack Lemon does a great Jack Lemon. Although, to be fair, he's best known for being the father of Chris Lemon. Um, <laughs> The eight of Christmas performance. Oh, Lord. Um, Jack Lemon's Jack Lemon. Yep. I don't know of a bad Jack Lemon performance off the top of my head. I think he's a little over the top, but that's a little. He's fun. In in the earlier parts, I think he is. I think he quiets down as he goes along. Mm. (laughs) I just don't think he's on screen as much later in the film because when Uh, he shows up, he he says something and he just opens his mouth as big as he can and grins. It's like, okay. He, he mugs an awful lot. He does. Um, Tony Curtis. Yeah, so we, I think all the major players are fine in yeah. this. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the direction, because this is Billy okay. Wilder. Yeah. Billy Wilder is, I don't think he's talked about as much, because to be fair, most of his films were so long ago, but he is Hollywood royalty. Oh, he is. And he man, influenced so many other directors, so many film styles. And I, I have a few facts here for him. He did mm-hmm. eventually win six Oscars. He I won believe it. One for Best Picture, two for Directing, three for Writing. He was nominated 21 times. Oh and boy. they gave him the Irving Felberg Award, which... Well, this some is people, the guy who gave us Sunset Boulevard and The Apartment and Sabrina. Ninotchka, Stalag yep. 17, The Seven Double Year Double Indemnity, Itch. original Casino Royale, although he wasn't credited for that. Yeah, he is a powerhouse, and he is luckily one of the people who very early on saw the color of the wind. (laughs) You want to go there. (laughs) Colors of the passing wind? What? It's 1933. I think I'm going to leave Germany. I think that might be a good idea. And so he did. And, uh, you know, good for us, because I don't know of another director that encompasses so much of the golden age of Hollywood as Billy Wilder. And Absolutely. Even in his lesser films, I think people tend to judge them based on his better films. So when you're that good, it's really hard if you don't make everything amazing. Apparently, he wanted to make a film version of Schindler's List because his mother, oh, wow. grandmother, and stepfather were killed in the Holocaust. Oh, boy. But, of course, he was way too early for that. Yeah. So... Ooh. But yeah, he, if you don't know some of his films, I will say I've seen almost all of the ones uh, I listed here. I've never seen Ninotchka. Oh, that's um, a great film. But I've Gar- seen the, one of Garbo's first, spe- Greta Garbo's first speaking roles. Oh, and is she it? knocks it out of the park. I haven't seen The Seven Year Itch, but I've seen The Apartment, also Sabrina Stalag, 17, Sunset Boulevard. Oh, yeah, there's a ton. Oh, and Lost Weekend. We forgot that one. That was only huge. Boy. So, yeah, if you are a film buff and you're looking for like, oh, you know, I should check up on somebody's films. And the last week we were talking about Orson Welles. Do yourself a favor and pick up uh, Billy Wilder because he's going to be a little easier to marathon because his films, even when you've got films like Starlight 17. Yeah, maybe we should. Even Starlight 17, which is one of his more 
dramatic films, these little darker films, there are yeah. still moments of humor in Some that film. Some of it's very funny. And you so, can see where they got the idea for Hogan's Heroes from it. Sadly, yes. It's like, how do we take something amazing and just really make it, make it awful? <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I just wanted to, to touch on Billy Wilder. Yep, that, yep. Now, that being said, what do you think of the direction of this film? Uh, I think it's pretty good. Considering it's two hours long, which is long for a comedy, especially a screwball comedy, I don't think it feels like two hours. I think it moves along very nicely. Uh, I also, I like it visually. I really like the way he just, the way he shoots Chicago and the way he, <laughs> I mean, the way he shoots back Lotgo and, yeah. uh, and Florida are so different. And, so, and they both fit. You know, Chicago is dark and cold and dangerous, and there's all the claustrophobic feelings of the alleys and the narrow and the streets. And in Florida, it's all sunshine and open and bright. Well, light, not bright <laughs> yeah. colors, because it's <laughs> bright in black grays. and white. But <laughs> yes, bright, delightful grays. I, you know, and it's funny because more often than not, pretty much every time you do winter in California because that's where I'm sure it was shot in the yeah. back lot. I've oh, been to yeah. that back lot. It's like, oh, look at the fake snow. I didn't yeah. even think twice about it here. That no. felt cold. It did. They and really, I, por- an actor portrays chilliness. Yeah, no, they really <laughs> did though. You felt cold and miserable and you totally understood why they were so tempted. So not only would this get out of, get us out of town and away from, you know, death, yeah. But we go to Florida, where it's warm and nice, surrounded by beautiful women. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, it's also a lot easier to make Florida, uh, or I should say California, substitute for Florida. Because Yes. You know. Yeah. Beach. That being, that's all you need. <laughs> it feels, he really makes it feel like 1920s Chicago and cold. Yeah. Which, you know, it seems like a minor thing, but so many directors do it badly. And it's just like, okay, so nothing's melting. There are snowflakes sticking to people, and they're not melting. It doesn't look like snow. It doesn't feel like snow. And for some reason, I just never questioned it in this film. And I don't know what he did, but hats off to him. Now, I, I, yeah. the tones in this film. Yeah. we have, First off, the way it starts, it starts like a gangster movie. We start yeah. out with a high-speed, more or less, chase where people are shooting at each other. Well, i got to say, though, the chase was actually really well shot because it's like that is a car that's literally fishtailing and hitting something and there's yeah. guys holding on to the outside of the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really bought the... the. I, I mean, I didn't... Yeah. I, I, I guess it's the 20s, so that was before anything like Miranda writes where it's like, that hearse looks suspicious. Open fire! Because <laughs> <laughs> they do. It, well, this is the late... This is 1929. This is the gang wars in Chicago were at their peak. Because, right. you know, Prohibition was at its, at its height and uh, bootlegging was big business. And yeah, there were gunfights in the streets fairly regularly. But I, I totally bought the car chase. Um, and yeah. the, but when as soon as we see the faces of the criminals, you know how there's people who play bad guys, and it's like, okay, yeah. this is a bad guy. You see all these people, it's like, wow, did they literally go into some of the roughest parts of, of Hollywood <laughs> and like find some down? Like, man, what a bunch of gorillas. Yeah. They're frightening. These guys look dangerous. I mean, they do. When Spatz has that line, uh, when. He says, yeah, you better call your lawyers. And he gestures at the gangsters around him. You know, these are my lawyers. And they all stand up and they're 
towering over Pat O'Brien, who is the yeah. police chief. I'm amazed he doesn't step back, because that is a scary wall of men. Did you hear a plop? I think there was a plop. Um, <laughs> By yeah, the they, way, Pat O'Brien is the stupidest police officer ever. He's why? undercover in the club. Oh, and... And he takes out his badge to use the pin to puncture the end of his cigar. Well, to be fair, the only people who can see it are the band. Which and is 20 people! But they're just musicians. What do they know? To be fair, Spatz knows who he is. Right. I mean, so he's not exact. That can't be a surprise. But that's just like, really? You're trying to be subtle? Not to mention he's sitting there looking at his watch going, five, four, three, before the, before the uh, raid starts. Well, I actually really like the way that uh, Joseph jumps out, just, not Josephine, Joseph and Jerry, <laughs> they, they're like, hey, look what's happening. And the way they react is like, oh, well, I think it's time to very yeah. carefully put down they're my Sudoku puzzle and then affix this mask with life-giving <laughs> oxygen that I might need soon. And they just like, oh, time to pack up and we're yeah, just going to walk out of it's, here. They're in a speakeasy disguised in a funeral parlor. And obviously, this is a pretty regular event. Right. So it's like, well, we don't want to get busted. Let's just get up and calmly walk out, carrying our enormous instruments with us. Well, and because they're not panicking trying to run, the cops ignore yep. them. And yeah. they manage to get out, and they're keeping their heads about themselves, and they get away, and that's fine. The yeah. thing is, is that that part is just a prelude. Because, yes, there is a, a murder they will witness. And then there's the St. Da- Valentine's Day Massacre, which... Yeah. Um, they machine gun like eight guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, like they did in real life. The yeah. thing, and thankfully they they don't keep it on screen, but they have them all facing the wall, which is I think exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened, and they were executed. Except for Toothpick, whatever his name was, yeah. who's like, "Hey, no, don't you? I didn't do nothing." But and yeah. they just gun them down in the middle of a comedy. Yeah, it's and at the really end, dark. At the end, little Bonaparte has Spatz and his boys assassinated in a cake. <laughs> yeah, a guy comes out of a cake with a Tommy gun and blows them all away. There, as I said, there is a surprising body count for this wacky comedy. And I have to say, th- those two tones almost don't work. Almost, but almost. they somehow do. Because Barely. it's so cartoonish in some ways. Only the cake is cartoonish. I got to say, the yeah. Saint Valentine's Day thing is not cartoonish. It's dark. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that's the dark part of Chicago, which then comes to Florida. But at that point, they're just trying to get away. Like that, we're not. We haven't got to the wacky part yet. So the only yeah. comedy is like I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. In that point, but as soon as they get away from the the thugs, and now they have to dress up like women. It's kind of like we're totally changing the tone of this film. The the type of comedy is going to be different. And initially, I think there's a little bit of shock there. And maybe that's why we spend so much time away from the gangsters. Because in a two-hour film, gangster, gangster, okay, now we're not going to see them again until 27 minutes before the end of the film. You've almost been given a point to forget about it. And the only thing I have against that is that the stakes, which start so high, come way down. So yeah. that through most of the film, the only stakes are, gosh, I hope she loves me for who I am. 
<laughs> as opposed well, the to stakes gosh, for most of it. The whole reason that they're staying disguised is we just want to keep this job. We're getting free room and board, right? And we're trying to figure out our next move. They don't. They aren't in immediate danger until the very end, right? I do want to talk about the story now. Okay. What do you think of these guys, these characters as people? Well, not. I don't think very much of either Joe or Jerry. They're terrible. I don't think much of anybody in this. My I, God. I have no problem with Marilyn Monroe's character. I mean, she's she's flawed and she knows it. I don't think she's that bright about it, but she's causing her own problems. Those yeah, two but are, she's also tr- technically a gold digger. She's sure. like, yeah, I'm going to find me a millionaire. I don't. I just want a millionaire with glasses. Well, to be fair, she wants to get a millionaire because she's tried love and it keeps screwing her over. Yeah. So she she actually has a a pattern she's recognized and said, "Look, I try to go for guys that really I go for, and it they always treat me like crap and walk out on me. Maybe I can get some guy. Like, yeah, it's it's going to be very esoteric and shallow, but you know what? Maybe we can still both be happy. I think of the characters in this film, she's the least of the problems. Possibly, she's the most in some ways realistic, but she also is just. In, the idea is not romance, but using someone to get what you want, which is pretty much what everyone is doing. Osgood is played for laughs. He's right. funny. But if you look, he's a borderline stalker. Right. He's harassing yep. Daphne, a.k.a. Jo- you know, Jack Lemon. Oh, He's pinching her in the elevator. He won't leave her alone when she asks him to. But Max, you forgot. Uh, it's Hollywood. Sexual uh, harassment yeah. is funny. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. what about the bellboy who won't leave oh, the Josephine bellboy, alone? Who, again, played for laughs, and he won't take no for an answer. Yeah, this was back when that was supposed to be okay. It's supposed to be romantic. This is persistent. the 50s. Yeah. You're not going to see a lot of woke people here. It just yeah. not. Now, that doesn't excuse it, but it really... It's the times. Nobody would have thought of not doing this. And this would but, continue yeah. even into the 70s, oh, yeah. 80s. It's probably still going on now. Of course it's still going on. But, but the, I, then so, we look at these, the two guys. Let's look at at Josephine and, uh, and Daphne. Well, what's Joe, Joe's plan? Joe's plan, he wants to seduce Marilyn Monroe through an elaborate deception. And how is that going to ever pay off? He will have sex with Marilyn Monroe. But he wants to be with her. It's not just, I want to have sex with her. We don't know that. There is no evidence of that. Initially, he just thinks she's a hot lady and he wants to sleep with her. That's what the whole setup of getting her alone on that on Osgood's yacht, pretending to be be doing the Cary Grant voice, pretending to be the uh, junior, the son of Shell Oil... He yeah. just wants to sleep with her. There is no evidence. At, there's nothing that says, oh, I'm in love with you. Uh, I love. I respect you as a person. You know, he wants to get her in bed, and they'll do whatever it takes. He'll tell whatever lie. He'll make his friend do whatever he wants just to get that. Well, he and I don't even awful. I don't know that his plan has any merit anyway, because as soon as she finds out one thing or another... She's not going to want to talk to him, except that's not how the film ends. We'll but get there in a minute. But he'll have already gotten, at the time, that's what all he wanted. You think he wanted a relationship? No, he wanted to get her in bed. Well, and here's the thing. I actually think that he, his character, has more feelings for her as a person than Jack Lemons does. That's not saying anything. Jack Lemons just sees her as a collection of body parts. He even describes her like that. But again, it's 
it's slightly better than Jack Lemmon's, but neither of them's going to win any prizes. No, they're both terrible. They're very I mean, shallow even, people. They're very shallow, and they are... And Joe, more, more so than Jerry, Joe is incredibly manipulative. Right. He's one of those people, he takes advantage of Jerry whenever he can. Well, let's he gets face him. it, it's not hard to manipulate Jerry. That's the thing. These two are actually a pretty, you know, he's very much the dom and uh, Jerry is the sub. <laughs> oh, we're going to get to that part, too. Yeah. But, I haven't uh, seen anybody he, this malleable since Gilligan. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty, yeah, he's pretty much a Gilligan. Yeah. But if you look at it. I, again, you have to look at it through the lens of the times. You have to look at it not just the time of 1959, but the times of 1929. It's played for laughs. But if you really look at it through any kind of aware lens, these are horrible, horrible men. Yeah. And they're horrible men who have no idea what it is to play a woman. And this, when I saw this, when I looked up, did a little research, too, they were talking about the Hayes Code and how they didn't want LG... Of course, they didn't call it yeah. LGBT. There is... Except for the very end of the film, and I want to get to that separately. There was no LGBT content here. It was drag. This was done forever. Before, I'm not talking drag queens. Just plain old. This is in drag. Vaudeville comedy drag. It's a guy in a dress, and it. In the context of the film, it works. Outside of the context of the film, nobody would have believed these were women at all. Yeah, and it's played for laughs. It shows no insight into what women are actually like. The women in this film are all... Uh, I, one of my notes was, oh, is there going to be a pillow fight? Because, you know, that was coming, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's just all very surface, schlocky comedy, making at the fun of uh, making fun of women at their expense. The LGBT comment or content comes at the very end of the film. And I'm betting, for the time, it was pretty shocking. It might have been, but I, I do want to say there are a couple of moments in there before. I know the one you're talking about because it's literally the last line of the movie. Yeah. But like, there's a point where he, Ger- Geraldine or uh, Daphne is screaming, <laughs> why would a guy want to marry a guy? Yeah, I, and, I, oh, okay. I have a story about that. <laughs> and Hang on. And when after he spent the evening with Osgood tangoing, Yep, he is in this odd state of euphoria because he—they just got engaged after knowing each other a day. It's very Disney, and he's excited about it. Yeah, he's actually like, you know, where are we? You know, we're trying to figure where to go on the honeymoon. Yeah, and like I think his—I hope his mother approves. He's caught up in it. He and then he's thinking. He, even then, he takes it to a horrible place, which is, oh no, we'll get married. I'll, I'll tell him after the ceremony we'll get a quick annulment and then I'll collect alimony for the rest of my life. Where's my question? Do you actually get alimony for an annulment or just no, a divorce? No, you do not. I he was wrong about so. that. You get it for a divorce, which is probably what he meant. Yeah. But he would want to be paid off. And now, to be fair, he comes around on that. He stops like, oh my God, I, that's awful. I can't do that to Osgood. Yeah. But his first response... Well, actually, it's his second. His first response is to go off and live happily with Osgood and go on the honeymoon. <laughs> and his second response is to try to take Osgood for everything he can. And then, admittedly, at the same way that uh, you know, in some ways, it's kind of a redemption arc. They both go, "Okay, no, I can't do this. I can't keep taking advantage of this person. I have to tell him the truth." 
Right. Or I have to run away. And then there's that final last line where he oh. takes off the wig and says, but I'm a Os- man. man. And, and Osgood, Osgood says, nobody's perfect and doesn't change facial expressions at all. That I love that whole exchange at the end where he's trying to explain, when he's still in drag, trying to explain why they can't get married. Oh, I'm a terrible person. I have a past. I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive I smoke. you. I smoke. I don't care. <laughs> I... I can never have children. We'll adopt some. And Osgood, who is very superficial and very much a cartoon, he's basically a Tex Avery wolf. Yeah. Like right down to making weird sound effects at her. <laughs> wow, Zowie. Zowie. Is absolutely committed. He is like, no, I'm going to marry you. I don't care about any of this. I don't care that you're a man. I want to marry you. And. I really, this is one of those movies where I really would love to know what happens next. (laughs) You know, maybe they actually just decide we really like each other's company. Let's just do that. And who knows? Who knows? And maybe every once in a while, Jack puts on the dress and they pretend (laughs) and and they dance and enjoy it. Who the hell cares? But for the 50-59, I am amazed there wasn't, like, some of the trivia was. So, so many theaters were stampeded because of this. Because it's basically saying these are two guys who are going to get married. Yeah. And it's played for a joke, but it is said. And it's, it's sincere. Po- yeah. That's the joke. The joke is that these are they're sincere. Not that it's two guys getting married. It's that, no, yeah, let's do this. Even Lemon's expression, when Osgood says that, at first he's sort of shocked, and then he's sort of like, hmm. Why not? He <laughs> just looks sort of straight ahead, like... He doesn't like look. He doesn't start screaming or trying to jump out of the boat, which would be much more in keeping. He's just like, huh? (laughs) I could do worse. Yeah, but uh, probably now we should get to the wrap up. Yeah, because time has gotten away from us. Yep. The finish. So Max. Yes. You've seen this many times. Yeah, 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 many, many times. And you watched it again for the show, probably yesterday. I did. Yeah. So what do you think of Some Like It Hot? Okay. Um, (laughs) If viewed through a contemporary lens, it's a disaster. It really is. It's incredibly offensive. It's misogynistic beyond words. It's sexist beyond, beyond belief. But if you view it through the lens of its time, and if you look at it just as a comedy, it's funny as hell. It's, the humor still works. The music is fun. The the cinematography is really good. The costumes, I see why it won an Oscar. And no, it's not just because they put those guys in drag. The costumes on everyone in this movie, especially Marilyn Monroe. I knew that was coming. (laughs) Yeah, really, they really work. It's a really well-made movie, as long as you don't think too much about the subtext or the actual character motivations. Uh, then it's kind of, then it's difficult, but I think it's a lot of fun. I think it holds up, and considering it's two hours long, I think it feels it doesn't feel long at all. And I think the gangster stuff is really funny, despite the fact it's interspersed with incredible violence. Right. What about you? You, I assume, have also seen this many, many times. Ah, uh, to be fair, I think yeah. I've seen it a total of all the way through twice. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Because I've seen the whole film, so I know I knew the ending. Yeah, I knew how the, how they got where they were. I, it was so long ago; I don't remember. No matter what you say about this film, though, Max, I think you have to agree that we have to give it credit 
and we have to laud it if for no other reason than without this, we wouldn't have had Bosom Buddies. That is true. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. They Buffy even and Hildegard would never have existed. Yep, they never would have. That They even referenced this movie in that show at least once. For me, the humor is cute. I don't find it outrageously funny. I don't find it laugh-out-loud funny. I think it's cute. It's mostly a very light film, and it's fun to watch, except when there's people being murdered with machine guns. <laughs> which, with today's sensibilities, would actually work better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Well, what was that dreadful film we saw where the, they, the, the guy shows up, and he's, he, he's supposed to be a male dancer, but he's actually... Um, was oh, it? oh, uh, there's a Scarlett Johansson movie. Yeah, uh, we did uh, bach- Bachelorette Party, something like or, that. Yeah, or The Weekend. Or, yeah, I know what you mean. And we actually have yes, a problem th- with the tones there because it's yeah. like there's a it dead person, funny. but it's funny. <laughs> I think that this film gets as close to being two different films and not working as possible without actually going over the line. Mm-hmm. It's Billy Wilder. The way the film is put together... Even if this isn't your favorite Billy Wilder film, I think it shows you what an amazing director and writer he was. Yeah, yeah. As inappropriate as it is, in the context of its times, the film works really well. He gets what I think is a really good performance out of Marilyn Monroe, which I didn't know was a difficult thing to do. Heck, he gets a believable performance out of Tony Curtis, which is yeah. really hard to do. Yeah, yeah. And he lets Jack Lemon just go and be full-on Jack Lemon. <laughs> Yep. Which is fine. I think this is just one of those legendary films that, again, you've heard so much about it, you kind of can't help but be more critical about it because it's so lauded. I do not think it's perfect. No, I think it's that not perfect. There's times blood. have changed. Obviously, our poll question, which we'll get to in a minute this week, has something to do with this. And, of course, the type of person that might be represented by this didn't outwardly exist back then. No, the whole transgender movement. No. Yeah. I mean, there was cross, there was transvestites, but transgender was not a thing in the fifties. Nope. Never mind the twenties. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, if you are able to take this film in its context and its time, yeah. by all means, it's Absolutely. fun. But uh, keep, you have to see it that way or you will throw something through the screen. Especially if you're somebody who likes, oh, I don't know, women at all as people. Because <laughs> yeah. this Marilyn Monroe's costumes are really, I, they're borderline offensive because it's like the camera follows her legs up her dress. The, the cleavage she's showing is really like pushing. The, I swear the haze yeah. have a, a measurement like you can only show six inches and they're sitting there and they're like yes, 6.1. They actually did. They would actually sit there with calipers and try to figure out the, how much cleavage was showing. And it's just, it's too bad because as I said, I think she actually shows she's more than just a pretty face in this. Yeah. Oh no, but she yeah. would. They had plenty of pretty faces. Marilyn Monroe had something else, but that's all yeah. other. That but, could be a whole other series. So two wary thumbs ups from us i would say just yep. just understand and understand yep. where we're coming from too and also where we're coming from is our poll question max if you yes. go over that sure as as this movie brings up is the trope of men dressing up as women still funny or has it just become problematic and you can answer this question as you have so often and we thank you for that either at our website maxmikemovies.com you can leave a, a comment you can email us at us at maxmikemovies.com 
You can also reach us on Facebook, and at the moment only Facebook, uh, under Max Mike Movies, and leave us a comment there for Bumpy Bucks Galore. Yeah, and by the way, keep keep giving us suggestions about other social yes. media because they're yeah. If there's something some. you've started to use in place of the Bird app, let us know. Yeah, and uh, you can find us on the podcast app of your choice, including many we don't even know exist. Sure, and but which we don't know. exist. Yeah, as we are coming toward the end, but not at the end of our monochrome series, we've got a couple more. What are we going to watch next week, Mike? Yeah, it's my choice. And, you know, it's that time of year. Uh, I don't know when you're listening to this, but for us, it's December. It's mid-December. And there's things going on. (laughs) And I'm not generally a fan of things because I work in retail. (laughs) So Um. I'm going to try and I decided to pick a film that has nothing to do with with this time of year. Oh. It's a black and white film. Yeah, I know, but I just can't uh, face it. No, I, need no, a film. I get it. Sure. It takes me out of this holiday season. It has yeah. nothing to do with it. There's no snow in it. There's no Christmas in it. It is, to be fair, it's kind of dark and depressing. Um, there's a couple of monsters in it, but uh, I think you'll all agree that uh, a contrast to this week's fluff, this comedy, is It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> um... Okay, we have to go now, and I have to remind Mike of a few things yeah, about it, this movie. It's the, it's the story yeah. about what happens after Frankenstein, when left alone, um, having killed his his owner, no, the oh Frankenstein boy. monster is offing, having a wonderful oh life. Oh, Lord. <laughs> in black and white. Yeah, yeah. And blue. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, folks, I, I we really have to stop now. Mike, come here. Sit down. Sit down for a minute. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.